0: we're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball this is the 80 20 baseball masterclass with with, with coach Bo. Welcome to the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass, the 80-20 Baseball Podcast. I'm Coach Bo. Here we are, episode 68, early March baseball season. In this episode, we are going to discuss the pros and cons of shortening the arm path. We've talked about this before. We're going to discuss it a little bit more in depth because I'm seeing this discussed a lot out there in the baseball community, the pitchers shortening their arm path, their arm action in the back. We're going to discuss that. We are also going to discuss, and I'm going to share, a tip to help help all of you coaches, if you're not already doing it, to build a better habit or build a habit of giving praise more consistently. In part three of this episode, I'm going to share tips to better optimize your pitching lineup, to stack your pitching a little bit better, optimize the stacking of your pitching staff. At the end of the day, your pitchers are either going to execute their pitches or not execute their pitches, but there are some things that you can do to help better optimize your pitching staff. It's not going to win you a bunch of games or lose you a bunch of games. At the end of the day, getting your pitcher's delivery better, their competitive mindset better. That's what's going to be the biggest needle mover by far. And we have a four-parter today. This episode is going to have a fourth part. And at the end, the fourth part is going to be a simple practice tip that can buy you an extra 15 to 30 minutes of field time. This will not pertain to every coach in every situation, but it's a simple practice tip that can buy you, your team, an extra 15 to 30 minutes of field time. If you're sharing fields, like a lot of teams are in in a situation that requires that or requires that you share a field with other teams in the league, in the area. All right. Before we get into part one, I always like to look back if we can and review a little bit from the last week's episode, just so it, it just solidifies those tips, those strategies, that mindset a little bit better. We talked about pitchers after they pitch all of your pitchers, your pitching staff should at the end of practice, if they threw bullpens that day or definitely after an outing, after they pitched in a game, they should go through a static stretching Routine, a five to fifteen. It could be a five minute, a ten minute, a fifteen minute routine that helps move their shoulders, and more specifically, and more probably, more importantly, their lats, their latissimus dorsi, their arms, their chest through a full range of motion. Static stretching is really, really, really good. Now, when I say static, they are not just holding it there, you know, without moving. The pitchers should be breathing. They should be working slowly to achieve and work through a greater range of motion. So, static stretching the shoulders shoulders, the lats, the chest, using the fence, using elastic tubing, the J band. That is a great routine. I highly recommend having that routine as part of your post pitching process. In last week's episode, we also discussed seek first to understand what makes our players tick. First, we must as coaches seek to understand our players, specifically what makes them tick, what makes them not tick before trying to get them to understand us as coaches. That was a quote or that is a quote from the uber famous book, the uber well-known book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. That's one of his seven habits that he recommends. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Now, after going back and reviewing the episodes, so I have my editor, Sam, he edits all the episodes out, but then I go back and I check it again just to make sure that the content and everything lines up with the message that I want to share. And really what I'm trying to do is take out any extra fluff or anything that I I just feel like it's just redundancies and things like that because I value your time so much and I want this to be an efficient podcast. So when I went back through, before I send it out live, episode 67, that is, I thought about this a little bit more, this habit that Stephen Covey shares with us or shared with us in his great book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he says, seek first to understand and then to be understood. I would maybe make this recommendation to coaches and people in general it may be a better strategy to simultaneously seek to understand others, our players, the people around us, and also at the same time to be understood. So it's a cohesive dual track way to go. And it's not one before the other, but simultaneously, just something to ponder, something I was thinking about, because you have to establish rules early on. You have to establish expectations, standards, as I like that word now, standards. So you have to establish those right away. You can't wait a month until you understand all your players ins and outs and what makes them tick and what they don't like, what they do like and understand their background and who they are as individuals. And then after say a month or two of getting information and Intel and all that, then you establish your expectation. Then you establish your standards. I don't know if that's the best way of going about it. I think we need to understand our players as much as we seek to be understood. And that's my point of this. I went back, I thought about this, I mulled over it throughout the week. And I think aside simultaneous two-pronged, a 2 track approach to this strategy is probably the best way of going about it. We need to seek just as much to understand our players as we seek from them to understand our expectations, our standards, and where we're coming from as a coach. Okay. Lastly, in episode 67, we discuss how to get more quality reps at practice by speeding up your transitions by using a stopwatch, whether that's on your phone or old school, I recommend just having a stopwatch. Or if you have a watch already, this works really good. Using a stopwatch to time your transitions and also have your players put their gear outside the dugout during practices, line it up along the fence outside the dugout, not away from the fence because then it becomes a safety issue, but right up against the fence in front of the dugout, not down in the dugout, not under the benches in the dugout, not where they have to walk in the the one door the dugout has and get around each other and work around each other. I promise this will speed up your transitions. It will speed up the dead time, the wasted time, It will allow your players to get to their gear, whether it's their helmet or their water bottle or what have you, it will allow them to get to that stuff faster so you can transition between drills, between parts of your practice much faster. And not only are they going to be able to access their gear faster because it's outside the dugout, it's spread out evenly. They don't have to work around their teammates and wait for them to go. And then there's only a limited amount of space. They should have plenty of space if it's spread out, say 12 bags with a one foot or two foot gap between each bag, gives them plenty of space and a direct line to walk right up to their equipment. Not only does it do that, it also eliminates, and one of my favorite coaching phrases or terms of all time, it avoids the extra grab ass. All right, I said it. Yes, it does avoid the extra grab ass in the dugout, going in and out of the dugout, etc. It just eliminates a lot of unnecessary junk. And thus, we want to have those bags outside the dugout. And on top of that, we want to time every transition. That might be just a ball party Transition picking up baseballs. It might be a transition between drills or between parts of a practice where they have to run over and switch out their glove for their bat, etc. And now, some of you may, with the bat, require that they keep it in their bag until you ask for it to be brought out. This is not a bad strategy. You can have a blanket policy with your players that they are not to take the bat out of their bag until you let them know that it's time to take it out. And this can definitely cut down on any risks of guys getting smoked in the face by a baseball bat. In fact, my first year playing back in 1986, 87, my first year playing baseball, I was walking over to the bat rack and Mike Mativi, my teammate, took a practice swing with his bat and hit another one of my teammates, Darren Gross, in the face and knocked his, I don't know if he knocked out multiple teeth so long ago. I can't remember, but I just remember one of the teeth falling on the ground. And that's a big deal when you're young, but I've seen injuries. I've seen over the course of the years, I've seen four, I've been present for four bat accidents, baseball bat accidents, and they have not been pretty, so thus that rule of having. In the, in the bag. This is kind of a side note to the uh, having their gear out in front. I recommend having as much of their, their gear out of the bag. Have your players, at the be- before practice even starts, have them take their water bottle out and set it on top or next to their bag. Have them take out their batting gloves, their glove, their helmet. Have that stuff outside the bag so when practice kicks off, they're ready to go. Everything is right there for them to get to. But the baseball bat might be something that you keep in their bag until you ask them to get it out. Now, episode 68. Here we go. Number one, part one. We're going to move through these quickly. Some pro- pros and some cons, some benefits, some trade-offs of shorting the arm path for the pitcher. This is a big thing I'm seeing in the baseball community. Major leaguers, Trevor Bauer is a big example. Joe Kelly is an extreme version of this. They're shorting their arm path in the back, their arm actions. that are not They're shorting it up. They're not going as long in the back. Now, there's a big trade-off with this. One, let me be right up front. I'm a big fan of this for a lot of players. I'm a big fan of this. I'm a big fan of shorting up the really long arm action, the arm path in the back. I am. I'm a big fan of it. Now, it's all about the individual and what works for one player is not always going to work for the other. But I do think there's some semi-absolutes that insofar as that, I do think some pitchers, some even and youth pitchers, it's the same, they would be better off shortening their arm path or arm action in the back a little bit. And it depends on each player how much. It's going to vary from player to player. But here's what I'm seeing, and this is something that I'm not hearing discussed throughout the baseball community, but it's the going to the extreme error. So I believe Joe Kelly's a perfect example of going from one, he wasn't, his experience, stream his life. Go back. If you want to look at when Joe Kelly, the relief pitcher who currently pitches for the Dodgers, when Joe Kelly was pitching for the Cardinals, look at his arm action. There are videos of him pitching in college on YouTube and his arm action was rather long. It wasn't the extreme long, like a Jared Weaver, but Jared Weaver got away with it because he was so uber athletic and just so talented and so competitive. He got away with it. So he probably would not have benefited by shorting up his arm. I'm not saying he would have or wouldn't. I'm I'm speculating that Jared Weaver wouldn't have done better by shortening his arm in the back. He was really long and it worked really well for him, but there's other factors involved. Joe Kelly was really long. Now he's the far extreme of short arm. Go look at Joe Kelly pitching for the Dodgers and look how short his arm is in the back. He barely takes it out of his glove, straight up, and it's though he's over-exaggerating, he's overdoing it to get it super short, going the far extreme because somebody told him along the way his arm path was too long and I think his stuff is just not as good as it could be. In fact, in 2019, is really his last full season and his only full season with the Dodgers, Joe Kelly's ERA was worse than the league average and even worse than his ERA over the last two seasons 2019 and 2020 61 innings 29 walks 61 innings 29 walks that is really bad and don't get me wrong I'm a Joe Kelly fan I like Joe Kelly As a person, I really like the guy, but when the Dodgers signed him to that fairly large contract for a guy in his role, a middle reliever, I don't think they were expecting to get a guy with a 4.5-plus ERA and 29 walks in 61 innings. And I think a big part of his control issues and his not-so-great ERA is directly related to him going to the extreme in shortening his arm path. He, in my opinion, has gone past the point where he should have shortened his arm path too. And he is a perfect example of a pitcher that's gone way too far. And I firmly believe he's gone to the extreme and shortened his arm path too much. And a guy that is very well known, probably better known than Joe Kelly, Trevor Bauer, who I like a lot as a person and as a player, but who I also think has gone too far. Not as much as Joe Kelly, not as far as Joe Kelly, not as far, not to that extreme, but I believe Trevor Bauer has gone a few inches two to three, four, five, six inches too far on his shortening. I definitely think they should keep their arm shorter than they were before, but avoid those extremes and you'll probably find a better fit. And what I mean by better fit, I mean you'll find better results. So this is something that I'm seeing. I think we got to be careful while I'm sharing this with you. As you see MLB players talking about this, this is definitely something that the MLB players are, are doing, but also young players should work on. Work on optimizing the arm path. Pitchers should work on optimizing their arm path in the back, their arm action, but you need to be careful that you don't go too far to the extremes. In life, extremes are not good. We all know that. And definitely the extremes out there on the baseball field are not good. It's almost as if they have this mindset that, well, if a shorter arm path is good, then even shorter than that, or as short as I can be is even better. And I firmly believe that they're studying pitchers. I've studied pitchers for 30 years. I've studied them closely for about 20 years. And I firmly believe that they've gone too far. They've gone, they've taken the decent idea, a decent fix. Something that I think was merited. It is warranted. I definitely like the idea of optimizing and in a lot of cases shortening the arm path. And I believe they've gone too far. Joe Kelly, I believe he's gone way too far. And the numbers show it. His ERA has jumped up over the last two full seasons. He's above league average. And that league average is including the American League. When he's in the National League in 2019, his ERA was like almost 4.6. And the league average, the major league average was less than that. It was like 4.4 or something. He was His ERA was worse than the major league average. And in 2019, he pitched in the National League, obviously, for the Dodgers. And the National League ERA is lower than the American League, mostly because of the DH. Now, you might say, Coach Bo Trevor Bauer just won the Cy Young. Yeah, he did. And he had a great year and his stuff looked really good. And I like Trevor Bauer. I think he works really hard. I love his out-of-the-box thinking. I like Trevor Bauer. I'm a Trevor Bauer fan. I really am. And I know he gets a lot of heat from people and this and that, and they think he's a little quirky, but I like him. I really like Trevor Bauer. Bauer, I like what he's doing out there. He had a phenomenal year, but you can't not look at the teams he pitched against. He had 11 starts. That's less than one third of a full season. Less than one third. Typically, starters are going to have 32 to 35, with about 34 being the average for a full season starting pitchers. Who had less than a third of the games, and 11 of those, or should I say, out of those 11, most all of them were against subpar teams. They're major league hitters. I get it, but you're comparing apples to apples, and you're comparing his. ER ERA versus the other players ERAs, the other pitchers in the major league. So you're comparing major league pitchers to major league pitchers. And he pitched against teams that just offenses that just weren't as good. In fact, Trevor Bauer had one win, one win in 2020 against a team with a 500 record or better one. He had one win. So he won the Cy Young beating one team. And I know wins and losses. I get the stat. I get It's not a a perfect stat by any means. But, you know, you do want to win some games, right? And he won a Cy Young with one win out of 11 games, one win the entire season versus a team with a record above 500. And in fact, his ERA went up 50% against teams that he faced with above 500 records. So his ERA against most of his games were against teams with below 500 records. When he pitched against a team with an above a 500 record, his ERA was 50% higher than versus those sub 500 teams. Again, I really like Trevor Bauer. I'm a big Trevor Bauer fan. I like how he trains. I do. One thing that's a little misunderstood is that Trevor Bauer was a good pitcher before he even got to the major leagues, before he even got to professional baseball. He won the Golden Spikes Award in college. He was told or voted the best player in all of college baseball. He was throwing pretty hard at the end of his high school career. It's not like he's just this late phenomenon. He went to driveline and just all of a sudden had all the success. I'm a big driveline fan, but I think a lot of people just don't know all of what goes into this. And they're like, it's really important to understand context. I even wrote an article, and I believe I made it into an audio article. Of my first episodes a year and a half or so ago. And the title of the article is Context is King. You know, you hear a lot about content is king, but I think context is king. I literally wrote an entire article on this and I made it into a podcast episode. You can go listen to that. And Trevor Bauer was the college player of the year 10 years ago. So he's not some overnight success by any means. 10 years ago, he was the college player of the year, not the college pitcher of the year. He won the Golden Spikes Award. That goes to the the best player. So 10 years ago, he was the college player of the year. You know how many thousands of players are in college, and he was the number one player. So I think we have to put that in context. And I love Trevor Bauer, and I think he's doing some great things. I think it's important, though, that when we see a guy like even like him shortening his arm path, now you're going to see a lot more guys doing it because he had success doing that. Be careful. I think he's even a few inches too short. I think he'd optimize it a little longer. Remember, shorter is not just better, longer is not just better. There's an optimal spot, an optimal arm path for each pitcher. And you'll know by watching it, you'll be able to see. And if you can't see it, you'll be able to see by the results. And watch this. Watch this. This is something that and I'm going to wrap it up by saying this. Here's a couple of things you got to be careful with. One, the breaking ball squirts out more. The breaking ball squirts out more when the arm path is too short. It squirts out. What do I mean by that? When the pitcher gets out in front, the fingers in the hand are not in the, the proper the optimal place, the optimal spot on the ball. And the ball will squirt out. It'll come out a little soon. The hand won't be where it needs to be on the ball at release and the ball will back up. It'll flatten out. Now, you can get away with some backed up breaking balls. Backing up a breaking ball from time to time can be effective, but it's not the way you want to be out there all the time. You don't want to be backing up and squirting your breaking balls out. It's not that good. And for kids that have smaller hands, which is almost all youth pitchers, those kids are going to have a big time problem with this because their fingers and their hands and their hand strength can't make up for the suboptimal arm path and back. In other words, for it being shortened up more than it should be. Now, being careful that you don't shorten it, overshorten it up, you don't overshorten the arm arm path because that ball will squirt out the breaking ball just won't be as good as it can be the accuracy of your pitches won't be quite where it needs to be for the most part big league pitchers have huge hands big hands oversized hands they're strong they're durable they can make up for that youth pitchers high school and down are going to struggle immensely if they overshorten the arm path but they're also going to struggle if their arm path is too long so it's about finding the optimal spot there in the middle somewhere and that's the whole point of this discussion and to wrap up this discussion a good way to train an efficient optimal arm path arm action in the back is to throw with a heavier than regulation five ounce baseball. This is something that you need to be very careful of doing. I don't recommend you do it on the mound. What I'm saying by throwing is maybe taking a plyo ball. These plyo balls are super popular. There's some really good programs. Driveline runs a really good program. Follow the driveline program, use the weighted ball and it will, or even a football. If you throw a football and you don't have good arm action, you are going to feel it. If you don't have an optimal arm path, you are going to feel it much more because a football is about 15 ounces. A baseball is obviously five ounces, so it's three times less, and thus pitchers get away with having an inefficient arm action, an inefficient arm path in the back, and they're going to get away with it more because the ball is not going to, the stress from the five-ounce ball is not going to show up on their shoulders and their elbows as easily noticeable. It's not going to be noticeable by the pitcher as much as if they're throwing something a little heavier. I've had a lot of success training pitchers with the idea of throwing a two-pound, now these are high school or professional or college players that are doing this, they're strong physical people. And throwing, not on a mound, but just on a flat surface, nice casual throw, not rushing it, but throwing into a fence, into a wall, a plyo ball. And really what it does to having a plyo ball, say at like one pound, two pound, four pound, typically that two pound, one pound, two pound for a bigger, stronger, this is definitely not for youth pitchers, unless it's supervised, heavily supervised, and it's done through somebody who's right there or somebody who really knows what they're doing. But I've done it with players that are stronger, more physical, 18, 19, 20 year olds, 23 year olds. We've had a lot of success. finding an efficient arm path by using a two pound plyo ball and the two pound plyo ball forces the arm to stay efficient and strong. It forces it to be efficient and strong because if it's not the pitcher's really going to feel the stress immediately on the arm. It's not going to ruin the arm necessarily. It's not going to tear their ligaments. They're not going to have to go to get Tommy John surgery but they definitely can feel it when their arm path is inefficient. So that's something that a lot of these major league players are using and college players and advanced high school players are using. Something to keep an eye on moving forward. Okay part two this tip can help you as As a coach, more quickly build the habit of giving praise. So you have a clipboard. I recommend every coach go out to the field with a clipboard. I know it'd be great to have an iPad and be able to use your iPhone and your Galaxy phone and this, that, and the other, or computer or laptop. But really, those just aren't the best way to to go out there and go at it with a practice. A clipboard, nothing can beat a clipboard out there with your practice scripted out, with your dynamic warm-up routine scripted out, your throwing program scripted out, and other notes that you have. But what I would recommend is print out a small font Team roster. So you have your players on there. You have all 12 players, 18 players, 14 players, 10 players, however many players you have. You have them printed out. You print it out and your goal is to do your best in an authentic way, as best as possible to give at least one genuine piece of praise to each player during that practice. One. Now, if you go past that and some players are, they're going to earn more. But if you could spread it out and you can give one solid, authentic piece of praise, hustle, a great play, good technique, they did something really respectful for a teammate. There's a lot of stuff to praise. There is. And you might take an hour and a half to find some praise for one of your players. It may not just be right there in the first 10 minutes. You may get through half of the team before you even get through the throwing program. But I think having a small font roster, your your roster printed out in small font right there attached to, and it could just be maybe even taped to the side of your practice plan or even put on a column on the right of your practice plan with a little box to check, or just maybe just their names and you cross it off when you give them some praise. And this This is like those apps on your phone that give you a reminder of drinking water or breathing. These are things that we know we need to do. We know how to do them, but it's nice to have some way to keep us accountable. And I think having a roster like that can keep you accountable. It also helps you spread out the praise amongst the players. Again, it's not supposed to be an equal amount of praise for every single player, but it would be nice if you could at the end of practice, look down and say that you did praise. You did give a compliment. You did commend one time, at least each player on something during that practice. And I believe as specific and as authentic as you can be, the better it will sink in. And then those deposits that you make, those deposits, and I'm using a bank analogy, of course, here, those deposits that you make with your players pay off big time when you need to make a withdrawal. And a withdrawal could be constructive feedback. It could be discipline. Those build rapport and those allow you to make withdrawals. And it's a give and take. In a perfect world, in a fake utopian world that some people want to live in, then they think they can just yell and scream and the the players are going to be fine and they're going to have I'm sorry, that's just not how it works. That's not how human nature is. You may have one or two or three players that are just fine with that. So print out that roster and start dishing out some positive praise. Next up, part three a tip to better optimize your pitching lineup. Okay, you can try to optimize your pitching lineup, how you're gonna set up your pitching, how you're gonna stack your pitchers. At the end of the day, spend your time on getting the pitchers better and throwing strikes, hitting the glove, throwing more than one pitch, being bulldogs out there on the mound. With that said, it may, you may find teams in your league, your opponents that you play, maybe they don't hit a certain pitcher that you have as well as another. So maybe you can stack a certain pitcher against a certain team, sometimes lefty versus a lefty dominant lineup, righty versus a righty dominant lineup that can play into it. That can definitely have an impact. I definitely wouldn't overthink this, but there are some strategies such as if you have a pitcher and I hit on this a little towards the end of last week's episode, if you have a pitcher that needs an extra amount of time to get his stuff dialed in, sometimes pitchers need more more than just between an inning. They run off the field from center field or from third base, or they run off from first base and they run down to the bullpen and they barely squeeze in 12 pitches, nine pitches before they have to go bad or go back out for the next inning. Maybe it's a quick five pitch inning. Those pitchers that struggle to get dialed in or need to kind of figure things out, maybe they have multiple pitches, like three pitches that they really like to use. They rely on having three pitches because their fastball is not overly powering or it's their command of their fastball is not great. So they really rely on other pitches. They're up the breaking ball. Those are the pitchers that you might look to start the game, even if they're one or two inning pitchers. You're seeing this in at the major league level, but I think it's something that we could use a little bit at the lower levels. And even in the youth baseball level, if you have a pitcher that you've seen that needs more than that standard little bit of time to get ready, maybe that's the pitcher that you start before the game. You set up their routine, you optimize their pregame routine, and you have them start the game rather than come in in the middle of the game or towards the end of the game. Sometimes pitchers don't do well at the beginning of the game. They don't like to be front and center to start the game. Again, if you live in a utopian world, every kid would have perfect mental health. They'd all be strong and confident. They'd go out there and they'd all be bulldogs. But that's not how it works. So you want to optimize the situation in the game that best fits them and also optimize which team they might pitch against or maybe a part of a lineup they might hit or if another team is going to sub players in the second half, you might think of keeping that in mind. Another thing is if you have a pitcher that hasn't had a lot of success, you might not want to throw them against a team that is really good. You don't want to bash in their confidence confidence. So you might pitch somebody, especially somebody, a pitcher that hasn't pitched a lot or is new to pitching. You might want to throw them against a team that they might have more success against. Also though, on the flip side of that, sometimes the best hitting teams in the league are the best hitting teams because they hit the fastball the best. And sometimes you can throw your slowest pitcher against them. So a good fastball hitting team, maybe you throw a pitcher that throws a lot of junk or slow and really gets them. Maybe you have a team that's got just like really good players. They're all advanced. A lot of them play up. They're all hitting off the batting machine at, like 80 miles an hour when that league average is like 57. Well, maybe you throw somebody out there that's throwing 48 or 52 miles an hour and really throw them off their game. This can be a useful tactic as well. But at the end of the day, get all your pitchers better. Get the pitchers to go out there and compete to repeat their delivery and make quality pitches. That is more important, way more important than where they pitch and what inning they pitch in. Although there are some advantages to be had. If done right, it's just a matter of how much of your mind do you want to take off? How much of your bandwidth do you want to put on that? versus those other bigger needle movers. All right, now for part four, a simple practice tip that can buy you and your team an extra 15 to 30 minutes of field time. So this doesn't apply to every team, but some teams, a lot of teams share a field or their practice time is slotted, say 5 to 7 p.m. and they have the field from 5 to 7 and that team before them goes right till 5 and the team after them is ready to go at 7. A strategy you can use. The best strategy I would recommend is, and this goes for teams that only practice like once or twice a week, and you want to really optimize that practice time. And also, you're not going to burn out kids if they're just practicing twice a week. It's really hard to burn out kids. If you practice, have fun, you give praise, you run a competitive practice, you run a fast-paced practice, you make it a fun environment, it's almost impossible to burn out kids from baseball with a two-hour time slot. If nobody's on the field before your practice, then you don't need to do this. So here's my recommendation. It's a simple recommendation. I've used it successfully with teams. Have your players show up for that five o'clock practice, just a hypothetical five o'clock practice. Have them show up and be ready to go at 4.30. So they're ready to go at 4.30 and they do the dynamic warm up from 4.30 to 4.45 and the throwing routine, plus or minus, this might drag over a little bit, would be 4.45 to five o'clock. Now that five o'clock, it may go a little longer when you're trying to build up arm strength, doing some extended long toss, I don't think it should just be a cookie cutter, 15 minute throwing routine. It may be 15 minutes. It may be 12 minutes earlier in the year before, you know, as you're just starting to build the arms up, but it may be a 25 or 30 minute routine when you want to extend out that long toss and really build up the arm strength and arm durability. But nonetheless, it doesn't hurt to start your practice at 430 for five o'clock practice or whatever. If you have six to eight practice, 530 kickoff, there you go. This little tip can help teams that are crunched onto a field. They're sharing one field or there's a field that needs, that's a team is using before and after. This works well for pregame. Also, when the field is uh, the game before you is going long, you should have a routine ready. You should have a spot somewhere around that's a safe place to do the dynamic warm up. Dynamic warm up. you got to have a safe place in terms of the surface because if there's gopher holes or things like that, trust me, you're laughing. In college at a division one baseball field, Sac State, Sacramento State, when I was playing at Long Beach State, out in the outfield, my freshman year, out in the outfield, we were doing dynamic warmups. We were doing these single leg hops and I can't, down. I don't know. It wasn't a gopher hole because it was on a division one baseball field, but there was a hole in right field. There was a, I don't know, probably five inch kind of not a snake hole or gopher hole, but it was like a, a hole that should not have been there. I don't know if it was just a big divot. I was so ticked off when it happened. I didn't even bother to go look back, but my knee, my cartilage in my knee, my meniscus ripped. It ripped. It ripped so bad. I couldn't even straighten my leg out until I had surgery the following week. And I missed a couple weeks, actually two, three weeks of the season. So if you are getting prepared off the side, or on a side field or something like that. Just be careful of the surface when you're doing the dynamic warm-up. And when you get to the throwing routine, make sure you have enough space. Make sure you have enough space. You don't want to get somebody hit right in the face by an errant throw if you're trying to force it into it into tight quarters. But overall, I think that strategy of starting practice, and then when it's five o'clock, say it's a five to seven practice slot for your team, you're ready to go into your first drill at five o'clock. You don't have to go through the warm-up, you don't have to go through the throwing routine. You are ready to go into your first official drill, although you're your throwing routine and dynamic warm up are vital in terms of building athleticism and building arm strength arm durability accuracy all of that but then when you get to 5 o'clock you can go right into your first drill All right, there you have it. Episode 68, the pros, the cons of shortening the arm path. A tip, I shared with you a tip to build the habit of giving praise, a straightforward, check it off the roster tip of giving praise at least one time throughout the practice to each one of your players. It just keeps you accountable. It's something that you can measure a little bit better than, did I give them, did I, you know, it spreads it out and it makes you think of that habit. It kind of forces you to keep that in the front of your mind, top of mind, as I should say. Third part, we talked tips to better organize your pitching lineup, to optimize your pitching staff. The last thing we just, talked about was a little strategy I think that can be useful to maximize your field time, your practice slot time. Next week, we are going to discuss how coaching up the catchers can improve your pitcher's accuracy. So what can we do with the catchers to help improve the pitcher's accuracy? I'm going to be very specific on exactly how you should coach up your catchers to help your pitcher's accuracy. I mean, at the end of the day, the pitcher's accuracy boils down to them executing the pitch. But there are a few things. There's definitely one thing that the catchers can do to help those pitchers out, their pitchers out, their teammates out in terms of being a little more accurate. In next Tuesday's episode, we are also going to discuss a new area. 80 20 book that was recently released. So, the 80 20 baseball podcast. No, this is not the 20 80 baseball podcast. It does not have to do with the scouting scale, the professional scouting scale, 20 80. It's the 80 20 principle, the 80 20 rule. That's where this podcast name came from. And there was a really good reason why I picked that. And additionally, next week, we are going to dive into where, as a coach, we can look to avoid the extremes on one end or the other. We're going to talk about strategic extremes. We're going to talk about training extremes technique extremes. We're going to talk about team culture extremes. And we're going to talk about how to find that sweet spot to best optimize our team's success. This is a key topic. This is a key topic. If you want to be the best coach you can be, don't forget to support the podcast. It would be greatly appreciated. If you could just give a little support, there's a link in the show notes. You just click the link and it's a, it should take no more than a minute to two minutes tops. And you can support the podcast here. That would be truly appreciated. You can follow on Twitter. Twitter, 8020 underscore baseball. You can also email me any thoughts you have, any questions you have. Email me, Coach Bo, that's B-O as in Bo Jackson, not the French way, but the American athlete way, B-O, Coach Bo at 8020baseball.com, Coach Bo at 8020baseball.com. And until next week, take care of yourselves, take care of your health, take care of that family and take this information right here that we discussed here and that we discuss on this podcast on the 8020 Baseball Masterclass class. Take it out there to the field, apply it, implement it, make the baseball community a better place. Go win more games while you're at it and have a heck of a lot more fun doing it. We'll catch you next time. Adios. This has been the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.